Before the passage from Mark that we're going to uh, study this morning, a couple of familiar verses from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What rich verses those are. What timely encouragement. May Jesus and his work on the cross to put away sin and now pleading our case before the Father on the basis of his perfect sacrifice give you the confidence always to come into God's presence to see his almighty throne as a throne of grace and generosity that he will supply you because you are represented with a flawless high priest who understands your needs with mercy and grace to help whenever you need it. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We have arrived at the climactic conclusion of this story of Jesus, who finds himself now with hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of others squeezed into this city whose population is usually, as I said last week, around 50,000, Jerusalem, for the time of the Passover festival when the birth of the nation its deliverance from slavery in Egypt, its constitution as the people of God in a covenant with their maker and redeemer was being celebrated at the Passover. We begin our reading in the 12th verse of chapter 14 and read on through the end of the chapter. So because it is a vivid account, lots going on, lots of people involved, and uh, a long narrative, the majority of the work here is not listening to the sermon, but following along the story. The first day of unleavened bread. When the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, Jesus' disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, we read in another gospel, it was James and Peter, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. That's the secret signal. Men didn't carry pitchers of water. Women did. Everything's been prearranged and held for secret to the last minute. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, 
The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And they were reclining at the table and eating. Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him, One by one, surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing he broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, and that hymn is uh, in the book of Psalms, it's the uh, Psalms appointed 113 to the 118 for the, uh, the Passover festival. They went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, there he's quoting from the prophet Zechariah, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. <coughs> but Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. They came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that, if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, that's his old name, before Jesus called him Rock. Are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him, and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. We're told who that was in another gospel. Anyone know? Peter. Interesting question why Mark doesn't write Peter's name here when his source is Peter. And we've seen time and again, Peter does not shy away from divulging embarrassing and humiliating things that he has done. Keep in mind when this book is being written and where it's being written, if you remember. Peter is falling under persecution by the Roman government. He's in Rome. This is being written to strengthen a church in Rome that is under persecution, facing pressure from Nero. Not a safe time for all that Peter will own up to and admit, to admit that Peter is guilty of cutting off the ear of a Roman. Well, it's a slave of a high priest, but in other words... Uh, not a safe time to tell the Romans that uh, Peter is rebelling against authority like that. And Jesus said to them, verse 48, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures. And they all left him and fled. Now, here's a couple of interesting verses. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him, but he pulled free from the linen, linen sheet and escaped naked. They led Jesus away to the high priest. <clears throat> and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. So we go back and forth inside and outside to the courtyard and inside where Jesus is on trial. Verse 55, Now the chief priests and the whole council, or the Sanhedrin, kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Now that rings true to something that Jesus said in John chapter 2 about his own death and resurrection. 
It also echoes what Jesus is predicting will happen, not what he will do, but what the Romans will do when the temple is destroyed 40 years from now. But anyway, not consistent testimony that can be uh, used against Jesus at this point. Verse 59, not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And those are those words in Greek, ego, eimi, with the extra pronoun added echoing God's name in the Old Testament. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And here he quotes a famous passage of Daniel. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him, and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officers received him with slaps in the face. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you were talking about. And he went out into the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you were talking about. Immediately, A rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Words are tested (coughs) for their worth when they are subjected to pressure. So, your kid can say, oh, I don't need to study more, I know this stuff. But in the pressure of the examination, it will be demonstrated whether his claim is accurate or not. That dining room set might look like a sturdy set of furniture. But we will see how sturdy that chair is when brother-in-law Bob the bodybuilder comes over and sits on it. And for all the claims that it makes by its appearance of strength, the quality of the wood and the craftsmanship in assembling it, will be tested under the pressure of 
brother-in-law Bob the bodybuilder, and what use is it to have a dining room set if you can't invite Bob the brother-in-law, the bodybuilder? <laughs> I was so proud of that alliteration, you can tell. So too, whatever we claim we are, whatever values we claim we hold, Whatever commitments and loyalties we profess are only as good as their ability to endure pressure and still stay standing. Otherwise, what good are they? They're mere theory. So it is uh, with that in mind that we come to this dramatic story where circumstances have brought together, along with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of other people, squeezed into the city of Jerusalem for the Passover feast. So many of the characters that we have seen throughout the story of Jesus, as Mark has presented it, the disciples, the chief priests, the scribes, Jesus, all put together, as it were, in a pressure cooker, and the heat turned up. And for all that they claimed to be, for all that their reputation makes them out to be, we see who they are under pressure. So, the leadership, for example... The priests, men set apart as holy men through ancient rituals and sacrifices, through a ceremony that sets them apart from their fellows to be a representative on behalf of the people of God before the throne of God in the temple to pray to represent God's people, to plead on their behalf, to make sacrifices, to burn incense. The chief priest, having in the front of his turban, inscribed on a gold plate the words, Holy to the Lord. These men whose appearance and stature and demeanor bespoke holiness, Devotion to the things of God. Together with them, the scribes, or in other words, experts in the law of God, those who had applied themselves to the study of God's Word, serving together here with the elders or those recognized by their example and rectitude of life to be leaders of the community. These are the ones who serve on the high court, the supreme court of the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin. And they claimed some autonomy in being able to rule their people even though they were under the power of Rome with the claim that they operated not by the wisest legal system that man had devised, but by that system of 
justice handed to them through their forefather Moses by God himself on Mount Sinai. A system of justice that respected the need for evidence and independent and corroboratable witnesses and impartial judges who weighed the evidence and did so in an atmosphere of complete fairness. So, for all of their claims and the appearance of this lofty, holy, and just court, what does that look like put under the pressure of personal animosity and jealousy in the presence of what is perceived as a threat, as competition, after for some years now being told about this charismatic preacher and healer of people so popular among the people. Will impartiality, will the commitment to their calling, will their commitment to being holy men override and supersede personal feelings of bitterness, jealousy, animosity? What does it look like under pressure? Well, they cut every corner they can because for some time now they've been bent on taking this man down. And if they have to compromise all of their own rules in doing so, they will. So one can consult the Talmud for all the rules that were written for the conduct of the Sanhedrin, how they were forbidden to meet at night in secret or during the Passover festival, how they had to carry out their proceedings in a certain room, and here they are not in that room, how they had to uh, consider testimony independently, how they had to uh, refrain from asking any leading questions that might lead the accused to incriminate himself, how they had to postpone any consideration of suggesting to the Roman authorities carrying out the death penalty for at least a day so they make sure that something so serious was not arrived at hastily. All of these things thrown out the window. They are looking for evidence having already arrived at the sentence. Clearly, a major fail on the part of the leadership of the people of God here. And we all recognize that, and we certainly would not want to let them off the hook. They are the bad guys in the story, right? But before we do that, we recognize that in this entire story, through this cast of characters, we are invited at every point to situate ourselves, to see if we recognize, maybe not in outward performance, maybe not in, in, in outward conduct, but in spirit, in theory, to any degree, ourselves. Where do we fit in this story? Do we recognize any glimpse of our own hearts? So, without letting the Sanhedrin off the hook, let's not be too quick to let ourselves off the same hook. What happens to our personal code of conduct, to our fairness, 
to that golden rule that says we will treat others as we would have them treat us. When at work, someone is guilty of nothing against us except being better at his job or her job than we are and making us look bad as a result. How successful are we at restraining our conversation with others? At interpreting things in a way that shows them negatively and ourselves positively, whether it's at work, maybe it's a sibling who has shown you up. Someone who exposes your own limitations, your flaws. Someone you're intensely jealous of. What thoughts of vindictiveness and malice lurk in your heart? Well, we're on more familiar territory when we come to the disciples of Jesus. These are men who are following Jesus. We're sitting here in a Christian church. We're not gathering together in some uh, assembly that opposes the gospel. So we can identify with these men who have followed Jesus now for the better part of three years. What's their performance like? What, uh, for whatever they've claimed to be, for whatever commitments they claim to have, what proves to be true when put to the test under pressure? Well, of course, we have a range within the twelve. From Judas, the betrayer, on one hand, to, you know, within this spectrum, the opposite end of the spectrum really is Peter. And then everyone else fits in, in between. And I'll explain that in a moment. But we are reminded right to the end here, that phrase, Judas, one of the twelve, right? So he's the outer end of a spectrum of response to prove what's inside under pressure. So what about these men? Who, when the crowds left after the feeding of the 5,000 and, uh, and Jesus says, well, I'm the bread of heaven and what you really need is to feed on me and eat my flesh and drink my blood. And so many were disgusted by Jesus' words recorded in John chapter 6 that they left him and Jesus says to his disciples, are you going to leave too? And these are the men who respond as voiced through Peter, where would we go? You are the one who has the words of eternal life. These are the men who were confronted by Jesus very clearly with the cost of discipleship. If you want to be my disciple, Jesus has told them already. You must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Follow the path that I am going down. These are the men who said, I want to be your disciple. I'm going to follow you. In full range from Peter 
to Judas. Now, that commitment, that loyalty, is under pressure. In theory, absolutely. Now, in the face of risk, or in the face of another enticement, what is it worth? What is it worth to Judas, who now realizes that his ability to profit in a financial sense from being Jesus' disciples, disciple is coming to an end. Perhaps he dreamed of a position in the government that the Messiah would claim by force, and that's not the way it's going here as the opposition uh, is gaining strength against Jesus, and Jesus is not backing away from the opposition or countering them using his miraculous powers to take over. So, he can profit by betraying Jesus. The expression is, every person has their price. These are the men, including Judas, whom Jesus taught parables to and explained them to and told them that those seeds that he is distributing, the Word of God, they can fall on different soil. They can be snatched away by the birds when they fall on the hard path where they can't gain any foothold, make any root. Or there are those soils where they gain root and they start to spring up, but there are rocks that prevent the roots from going down deep. And when the sun comes up and when the heat is on, in other words, in times of pressure, because there's no root, the plant withers times of persecution. And there are those seeds that fall among weeds, and they take root as well. But the cares and the pleasures of this life, all that we worry about, all that we lust after, they crowd out the good seed and the plant that grows from it. Our own relationship with the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ, because these weeds have not been uprooted. And a weed in Judas has not been uprooted. The avarice, uh, love of money that uh, Paul says is the root of all kinds of evil. And now he takes some money to stab in the back the man whose sanctity and love he has witnessed for three years. Ranging to Peter. Well, no one gets off the hook, really, right? Jesus says, you'll all fall away. And nobody likes that. They all protest their loyalty. Even when Jesus backs up his claim with prophecy from Zechariah, oh, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. It's going to happen. They still protest. No, not me. Maybe him. Not me. And what happens? The betrayer comes and they flee. Among the best of them, Peter, James, and John, right after the protest, we will not abandon you. We will stay with you. He says, okay, 
I'm going to be right here. Stand guard. And they fall asleep again and again. Now, Peter, I think because we know the most about him, uh, I don't think we give him quite enough credit because I think he's on the other side of the spectrum from Judas. Not Thaddeus, not James, not Levi, but Peter. Uh, Yeah, he made the biggest claim to loyalty. He was pretty arrogant and full of himself and not really aware of his own weaknesses and frailty when he said everyone else might run away, but not me. But let's give Peter the credit that when others did run away, Peter didn't, or not quite yet. He followed. He was scared. He goes to the courtyard. He watches. But he too fails. Denies knowing Jesus because that that great claim to loyalty and fidelity, born out of love, from the frailty of a human being, a sinner, but love nonetheless and sincere. When it came to requiring risk, and he realizes in the moment, no longer in theory, that uh, he's in danger. He denies Jesus three times, just like Jesus said. What about Jesus? Oh, by the way, before we leave the disciples, did you figure out who the young guy was in 51, 52? Young man, we can say a boy. And all he was wearing was a linen sheet. He was in his pajamas. And he's probably following along with the, with the grown-ups when he shouldn't be in a dangerous situation. Who said Mark? Yeah. Now, Matthew and Luke follow Mark's account really closely. Many scholars would say they depend upon it. In any case, they're using similar sources, a similar pool of eyewitnesses, but Matthew and Luke do not include these verses that seem to add really very little, if anything, to the story. But it is Mark's way, I think, of subtly and humbly not only showing his own failure, but also reminding people, I was there too. I remember these things as an eyewitness. I was a little boy in my pajamas. And a little boy will remember when uh, some mobster grabs him by, the, uh, by his pajamas and he runs away naked. That, that sticks with a person. So what about Jesus who claims Messiahship? Who claims to be that one in the Old Testament uh, the Deliverer, the Son of God, who who makes these claims when under pressure. What do we see? And, of course, he is the only one left standing here. And he, the one who is under the most pressure, the one who faces the opposition, 
of people with clubs and swords, of the leadership who have the authority to recommend the death sentence to a governor who is wanting to please the people and keep the peace. Jesus, who is abandoned by all of his friends, even his closest friends. is the only hero standing. And it is a tale of great heroism. Here is a man by faith. And he's grasped the Word of God. And he's truly human. He doesn't want to die. We see his humanity in that most intimate of moments, I think, in the entire Bible when Jesus is praying in the garden. And he uses that word that we don't read is used of God elsewhere until Paul says that because of Jesus and because of His Spirit inside of us, we can use it too. It's that form of the word Father that is used by a young child, we would say, Daddy. Abba, I don't want to drink this cup. You can do anything. You can take it away. You can exonerate me. I haven't done anything wrong. I'm surrounded by failures. They're sleeping right over there. The best of them, failures. We can let this world go to hell. And here's the victory. It's, uh, it's not in getting an ear cut off, one of the mobsters. It's the victory inside the heart of this man, Jesus, who embraces the will of God. It's a victory that comes by faith in the promises of God where time and time again he says to his disciples and to the Sanhedrin, This isn't the end of the story. You've got me under judgment here, but I am the Son of Man. Yeah. And you're going to be in a reversed position when I come on the clouds with the angels, seated at the right hand of power. To the disciples, you're all going to scatter. But then I'll be raised and I'll see you in Galilee. The strength of faith. What we see in Jesus is the only hero standing so that when we put ourselves in this story, we might despair of any high claims we might make to personal strength, to a value system that sets us above anybody else. Are we better than Peter? Only one is left standing. Only one has any claim to be exactly who he claims to be. A man of integrity. A man whose words are not empty. Even though they're the highest words and the title he claims, the highest title, Jesus. And yet we're not given his his, uh, example simply to point out our own failure. Sandwiched in between, notice, 
the claim at the Passover meal where Jesus is saying, one of you will betray me, and Jesus' prediction that all of you will scatter and leave me alone. He offers them the bread of the Passover supper, that third cup of thanksgiving, with these words, Take it, this is my body. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. I'm not going to drink it again till we're together in the kingdom on the other side of the grave. In other words, Jesus' heroism here is pure grace and gift to those who acknowledge that we are in the story as failures who cannot stand on our own. To those who see in this story personal need. And Jesus not only does what we do not do and cannot do, but He gives to us what we could never come up with for ourselves. True loyalty and fidelity. True strength of faith. Strength of faith that I think is seen nowhere more incredibly and forcefully than this man abandoned by his friends, standing before the Sanhedrin with all of their robes of glory, telling them, you better watch out, because the next time you're going to see me, I'm going to be seated on the throne. Wow. They looked for a man trembling, scared, and they found the power of faith in God. It's just like the Passover they were celebrating. Not a tale of great heroic slaves that overcame and threw off the yoke of Egypt, but of a God who in great mercy, with a strong, outstretched arm, delivered his people. And as soon as he brings them out of Egypt and they face the pressure of Pharaoh's army behind, the Red Sea in front of them, And they despair. Think, why did you do this? They say to Moses, why did you bring us out to die? And it would happen time and time again. And despite, not because of their faith, but despite their lack of faith, not because of their fidelity, but despite their complaining, God delivers them time and again. He provides them manna in the wilderness. He guides them, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. He protects them. So to Jesus, this is my body. What you see in me, I give to you. This cup, it's a new covenant. It's a new arrangement, not like the old covenant, in which the people of God stood at the base of Mount Sinai and said, oh yes, we will keep all of these commands, and got sprinkled by the blood of the sacrifice. No, This is the covenant that is based on Jesus' righteousness. His 
complete fidelity to the demands of God, to his own, the cost of his own life. This is a covenant that is in my blood. That blood of innocent sheep that was spread in the doorposts and the, on the Passover telling you, you know what? You're no less worthy of the wrath of God. You're no better than the Egyptians inherently or innately. You are fallen human beings. You are sinners, but it is by God's grace that you are saved. And here is a substitute whose blood will show the angel of death that the price for sin has been paid for in this household. This is what I give to you from myself for you not to paint on some uh, doorpost in your home, but for you to take into yourselves as protection against death. Here is my life for you. You're safe. He says to those who are going to scatter, to those who are not good enough to receive it, precisely because they need it, precisely because He is God in the flesh, who is a God of grace. So in Jesus, we see the opposite of ourselves. In Jesus, we see the gift of salvation to us, where we had nothing to offer. And in Jesus, we see our example. He does give us his strength. He does te tell us the secret to following him, to starting over again, to being people of integrity who don't make this bravado, machismo claim of loyalty like Peter only at the last minute to completely dissolve into unfaithfulness and self-protection, but rather in humility. Jesus teaches us to pray elsewhere. Don't bring us to the test. The Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, or a better, clearer, modern English translation. Don't put us to the test, but deliver us from evil, or more precisely, the evil one. What does that mean? We will be tested, but we don't seek out that testing. Jesus knew he would be put to death. But not because he wanted to. And he teaches us to pray, deliver us from evil, spare us the hour of testing, out of our own awareness of our frailty. But when we are put to the test, he assures us that by his Spirit living in us, we will have the grace to stand. Verse 38, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation or you may not put, be put to the test. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The Spirit of Christ is willing. We come to Him for mercy again and again and for grace to help in time of need. So Jesus is our Savior and Jesus is our pattern of strength. Like Him, following Him, we grasp hold of the promises of God. They're given to us again and again. Jesus even reaches out last minute here to Judas. Woe to the one by whom he is betrayed. Would have been better not to be born. Imagine hearing those words 
and still carrying out the plan. God, deliver us from ourselves. God, deliver us from our pride. God, deliver us from any sense of our own sufficiency and strength. God, thank you for a Savior who has gone through the heavens, was tested in every way as we, with this difference, he stood the test. And he stood the test not for his own salvation, but to give that success and victory as a free gift to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you even for the humbling awareness at times that we have when we read your word. That in ourselves we are weak. But we thank you that that never comes to us as a word of condemnation without the provision of salvation. That your strength is made perfect in our weakness. So we own our weakness, but we also lay claim of your gift of strength in Jesus. The one who gives us the confidence, despite all of our failing, and how long is the list of our failures, Lord? How our adversary would have us skulk away in shame, never daring to look you in the eye. But in our shame, rescuing us from despair, you give us boldness because of the great high priest that represents us in perfect righteousness. So, Lord God, we pray for your mercy and for your help in our time of need. We will need it when the pressure is turned up. We will need to look to Jesus and follow in his steps without self-confidence, but with greatness of faith in your promises, with greatness of faith in the perfection of his work for us and in your great love, Lord, to tell us we'll scatter, but we'll see you in Galilee, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for the assurance that does not depend on what we have done or our ability to carry out your will, but on Jesus, that covenant that's sealed with his blood. And for that, we give you great praise. Amen.